morning. Uh, great to see you here and uh, great that um, hopefully, well, I trust many of you are joining online with us as well this morning. It is a great time to be together to be dealing with this topic and it is a, a topic of massive importance, of great significance and um, very serious. I always feel a kind of weight of it that we're dealing with things of eternal uh, consequence and so let me pray uh, you may not be someone who does pray in your own kind of context but let me pray for us and uh, and ask that God might actually help us in this whole experience let me do that now our great God we do thank you that you have uh, made yourself known uh, through Jesus the scriptures and we ask please this morning that you might help me speak clearly that you might help me speak what's true that you might help us engage in a way that's important and helpful, but we do ask that you would fulfil the promise you have made that those who seek would find. Please help us find the truth this morning, we ask, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a great series we're doing over these next few weeks, What is a Christian? In a sense, we do it every week here in church, we're exploring what a Christian is and so on, but uh, it becomes quite important for it because of the context of the world we're in. Did you know that Pew Research, which is uh, kind of a major American research body, says that Christianity remains the world's largest religion? So fully one-third of the human population on the planet says they're Christians. Uh, That's about 2.8 billion people. In Australia, uh, we're told that uh, even in our context, over one half of Australians still identify as Christians, 52%. Now, with all the pressure on, that is still an astonishing thing. Christianity is still the biggest, by far, population group in our country. It's the biggest around the world. But that still, that kind of begs the question, but what is a Christian? I mean, billions of people identify as Christians. But what is one? especially when the variety of Christianity around the world is massive. You know, I've got all kinds of Christian churches uh, that kind of, you know, they, they range from the kind that's all rainbow and kittens, all love and niceness, across to those that yell all the time and are angry at everybody and hate on people. Uh, you've got um, the, the very institutional, lots of priests, lots of robes, lots of dresses, men roaming around with candles. And then you've got the hippie, barista church with tattoos and coffee you've got very which is that us I don't know what we are the hippie church or not but um, you've got this kind of massive variety of different churches around the world and different Christians Um, we ask people we did this uh, survey we do this regularly each year we asked people some months ago what they thought a Christian was and the interesting thing was that people came back with all very different answers You know, it's someone who is good, it's someone who seeks to be better than other people, it's someone who goes to church, it's someone who believes certain things. A great variety of answers. And so the question for us, what is a Christian, is fundamentally important. And I want to suggest to you today that it actually takes us to the very heart of who God is and how we can have relationship with what is a Christian. So we'll spend the next week tackling, next four weeks, tackling that question. question. Now it is a good question but uh, is it just me but every time I saw the sign as I drove past this last week uh, what has Jesus got to do? Does anyone remember Tina Turner? Was it Tina Turner? Okay so it's not just me all right everyone over 40 is going yeah what is what is love got to do with it? Now I like the symmetry so what has Jesus got to do what has love got to do with it? There we are Um, we'll come back to that perhaps but it is a great question though I have one important quibble 
And I do this most years, and uh, people who make up the question, which is me, get really grumpy with me. So I'm grumpy with myself. But uh, it's actually a very good question. But one little quibble with it, it's important. It's an important one, I think. In a sense, we're starting at the wrong end. You know, we need to. Uh, we're starting with uh, what is a Christian, what is Christianity, and then how does Jesus fit in with that? But what we should be asking is in completely the reverse order. Who is Jesus and how does Christianity fit in with him? Do, do, do you see what I'm saying? It actually should be the complete reverse. Now, it's natural we start the way we have and I, I think it's appropriate and good. But why, why ought we start the other way around? Well, because Christianity is the result of 2,000 years of human tinkering. Do you know what I mean? We've been, we've, it's been landed into the hands of people for 2,000 years and we've tinkered with it all of this time. And when you then ask, what has Jesus got to do with this edifice that's been created across the world, you kind of get messed in your head. I think it's better to put Christianity and Christians out of your mind. I think it's better to, to, to just sort of strip out of your head all the denominational experiences you've had, all the different church experiences you've had, and with me over these next bunch of weeks, get back to the source. Start again, start fresh. Do you know, I love this story about the Oval Office in the White House. I'm not sure if it's true, someone perhaps can correct me later, but there's this great story about the White House that every new president who comes in, and we're getting a few of them quite recently, it seems, but every new president who comes in, they repaint the Oval Office. Have you heard this? And, uh, and so over the years, decades, whatever, the Oval Office had layer upon layer of paint, you see, put on it. And they eventually decided to strip it all back. And as they did the work of stripping it all back, back to the bare plaster behind it, they actually discovered, hidden behind layers of paint, are these incredible plaster impressions in the plaster of uh, animals and, uh, and flowers and plants and so on, American things, which was actually quite beautiful and wonderful. But the layers of paint had covered it, you see. Now, hey, now whether it's true or not, it's a great story, isn't it? Um, but see, here's the thing. 2,000 years of Christianity has been layers of paint on top of its roots. And when you go back to its roots, they're beautiful. And the paint scraper, I'm going to suggest it's Jesus. In a sense, he's the paint scraper who can take us back. Why? Because clearly he's where it all began. One thing that makes that obvious is just the name Christianity, Christian, that comes from the word Christ, which is Jesus, not Jesus' last name, it's the title that Jesus had, Jesus the Christ. Now, we're going to dig into that in a moment, but Jesus the Christ formed Christianity, Christians, people who are Christ's people. And so the roots of it go all the way back, of course, to Jesus. He's the one, the founder, the start, that's the key. So let's start with him this morning. Whatever you think of the church, whatever you think of the denomination you've been part of, when you've been born and Sam was raised in the Catholic Church, others have been raised in Anglican, others in Baptist, others in SDA, whatever. Some have had no experiences of church. Put it all aside. Because whatever you think of all of that, Jesus is stunning. Jesus is incredible. Now, to get back to Jesus, we've chosen one of the eyewitness accounts 
of the life of Jesus. It's called the Gospel of Matthew, written by a man called Matthew, who was an eyewitness of the events of Jesus. And we've chosen this part of the Bible to look at because we want to encourage you, actually, over the next little while, this next few weeks, to to grab that Bible and start reading through this account of Jesus' life yourself. It's there, it's public, it's available, you can get it. Uh, Read through this yourself as an adult. Some people did it as a child but have never gone near it again. Read it as an adult. Some people have never, ever looked at it. Check it out with us. I'm going to show you a little bit of it uh, this morning. Come with me if you've got a Bible, if you've been given one of those this morning. Um, you, can, uh, you can grab open to Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. If you haven't, just listen along and we'll, uh, we'll follow it as we go. But grab one for next week and come back with it. Chapter 16, verse 13. It's halfway through the account about Jesus. And we hear here, verse 13, that when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Now just pause it, I'm going to pause this a few times as we go through this text, just so we can understand what's going on here. Notice the nature of the account. Notice how specific it is. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? This is a place you can go and visit today. It's a real place and exists. And what you have is an account that has the details of locations, names, times, history. This is not in a galaxy far, far away. Do you know what I mean? This is not some kind of... Really helpful. It's a surprise to many people, actually, that um, the Bible is like this. There's this very popular idea that's done the round and plays out in the media that... Somehow it's understood that the accounts of Jesus, so the one we're reading here for instance, started life simply as an oral history that was told and then someone else retold it and then someone else retold that and each time it was retold uh, it was embellished. You know, people changed it and, you know, Jesus says, I'm really good and it got embellished into Jesus says, I'm God. You know, he just dropped a no. And so the, the story got shaped and changed over the centuries as it was retold and retold and retold. A very popular understanding of things. But the truth is very different. The four accounts of Jesus' life, which make the first four books of the New Testament, were all written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. Within 20 to 30 years of the events, they were written down. I had Christmas with my parents just this last week. We had to cancel because of COVID. It was a great distress and all of that. My parents are turning 91. They have no trouble remembering 20 years ago, 30 years ago, better than I do. They can remember 70 years ago. My mother tells stories 80 years ago. It is not a difficult thing. You know, the four accounts of Jesus' life were written in the lifetime, within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. There was no time for legends to develop. The rest of the New Testament was written within 10 to 15 years of the events they talk about. It ought not surprise that this is so, actually, because the authors insist, as we see, that they saw and experienced something that was so astonishing, so profound, so amazing, that they knew they had to write it down for the world to hear. It mattered to them a great deal that people understood these things. So, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, 
a question. And the question is this. Who do people say the Son of Man is? That's the way Jesus talks about himself. Who do the people say I am? Now, at first flush... Again, just pause there. That can um, seem a little bit messed up, yeah? Because if the vast majority of us ask that question, who do people say I am? Uh, you know, just imagine driving home from a party and, um, you know, you turn to your wife after the evening as you're driving home and you say to her, um, well, well, what are the people saying about me? How would your wife respond? Well, it would depend on how kind she's feeling towards you. But typically in her head, she'd be thinking, I need to get counselling again for you. Do you know what I mean? What, what's going on for you that you're obsessed with yourself and how you're going? For us, it would be a messed up kind of question to ask. But when Jesus does it, who do people say the Son of Man is? It has a very different ring about it. Because it's been the very question that everyone who saw Jesus was asking. Let me take you for a quick run through this account. And as I say, I hope you read it yourself and can go back to it. But Matthew chapter 4, very early on, just as Jesus began his public ministry, which you remember only lasted for three years, this man has made an impact on the whole planet after only three years of public ministry. But in chapter 4, verse uh, 24, news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were, who were ill with various diseases and so on. Verse 25, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the regions across the Jordan followed him. Jesus made a massive impact. You look at chapter 7, if you can flip over to there, chapter 7, at the end of what is one of the most famous pieces of teaching ever delivered by a human, Matthew chapter 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of that, verse 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. They were astonished by this man. In chapter 8, Jesus does an extraordinary miracle and at the end of it, verse 27, the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is is this? Who is this person who's with us? In chapter 9, verse 33, and when uh, the, the healing happened and so on, the crowd said, they were amazed, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Astonishing. And so the question Jesus asks is the question everyone had been asking. Who is this man? Now they offer various answers. Come back to the text with me. They offer various answers. Verse 14, some replied, uh, some, they replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now there's a bunch of answers that the various were given variously by the people in the first century as they were trying to come to terms with this person of Jesus. I'd offer that they're not our answers, are they? If you go to wear an affair and you walk into a shop and ask the assistant there, who do you think Jesus was? I'd give you a million bucks if someone came up with John the Baptist re resurrected. Um, actually, I, you know I wouldn't do that, but it, 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 no one is going to say that, John the Baptist. No one's even thought that in our day, but back in their day, they were the proper answers to give, in a sense. They were, the, they were the answers that made sense. Why? Because those names, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, those names were associated with God coming to save his world. 
Let me give you a bit of background. In their Bible, the Jewish Bible, which is our Old Testament, um, there were a whole bunch of prophecies that had been given over many centuries. And these prophecies talked about the fact that one day, God would come back to his world, not that he ever left it, but he would come back in an intentional, deliberate way to fix it, to, to eradicate injustice, oppression, evil, death even. He'd come back and he'd fix the world. He'd bring justice and he'd bring peace and eternal life. And the sign, said these prophecies, the sign that that was about to happen would be the appearance of these very great figures, Elijah, the prophet, one of the prophets. And so the people were waiting for this great event that God had promised would happen. So when Jesus came and did what no man had ever done, it triggered all of these connections for them. Is he the Elijah? Is he the prophet? Is he even John the Baptist, who appeared to be like Elijah, come back to life again because he was killed by... Is he one of these great figures that we've been waiting for? Now, Jesus starts there. He says, who do the people say, I am? They gave their answers. Verse 15, look what he does next, though. But what about you? He asked them. Who do you say, I am? You see what he's done, he's uh, shifted the tone. He's gone from uh, very general and broad, what do people think, into very specific and narrow and focused and personal. What do you think? And that kind of shift is, I mean, Jesus in many ways, you read through the accounts of Jesus and he's compelling, he's amazing. There's something, he, he, he won't let, he keeps pushing people to commit do you know, you imagine an um, election coming up in, in some time and the, uh, the journalists who are reporting on the election, um, you know, t talking about all the ways people are voting and the patterns and so on, and as they banter back and forward, you know, who do you think people are going to vote for? And they give all their answers. Very easy and comfortable. And then one of the presenters says to the journalist, who are you going to vote for? On national TV. It's a different question now, isn't it? And there's a different thing that happens for you. For me to answer is to give out what I think. It's to commit. And that's exactly what Jesus does with his disciples. He says, it's all well and good to hear what others are saying, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Well, verse 16, Simon Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Boom. This is massive. Because the word Messiah is that title that we began with. It's actually the same word in Hebrew as the word Christ is in English or in Greek. So you've got, you've actually got a, a Greek-Hebrew word that gets translated in different languages, literally translated, just means the word anointed. So this little word just means anointed. But when you translate that into Hebrew, it comes out as Messiah. When you translate it into Greek, it comes out as Christ. And when you just turn those 
Hebrew Greek words into English to just transliterate them, they turn into Messiah Christ. But it's just the word anointed. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, same word. You are the Messiah. Now, who is this figure? Well, the Christ, the Messiah, was a figure out of the Old Testament again, out of a set of prophetic expectations about someone, the Great One, who will come. You get it in Psalm 2, Psalm 110, 2 Samuel 7, various places. There's even a hint of it in Genesis chapter 3. And in every place that's spoken about the Anointed One, the Messiah... He is the great end-time ruler, God's Son, who comes to rule, who comes to re-establish God's rule, who comes to set the world right. But the expectation in all of those Old Testament passages, read Psalm 2 if you want to go and explore this, read Psalm 2, read Psalm 110, the expectation was that that anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, he would rule not just over the Jewish people and not just during his lifetime, but he would rule all nations for all time. The Christ. Now feel the weight of that, that this ancient people, the Jewish people, were given to believe that one of theirs would be born, one of their kings would be born, who would be a king not just over their nation, but would be born to rule all nations, for all time, over every human on the planet. That's what they thought, that's what they were given to believe. And he would become the saviour of the whole world, God's very son, God amongst us. That's massive, just in itself, that one little people thought that. But what's also massive is that Peter says to this carpenter from Galilee, that you're that man. You're the Christ. You're not just one of the side figures anticipating. You're the one. And in the sweep of uh, the account, this eyewitness account that Matthew gives us of the life of Jesus, this is something of a turning point. You see, it's now out. Jesus has been, has been speaking and teaching and, and, and doing to draw out, to demonstrate the realities of these things, and now it's out. And, and Jesus himself says, verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Wow. This is a God moment. Now, that's all I've got to say. That's Christianity. Jesus is the Christ. Christianity is Christ. True Christianity is about Jesus being the Christ, the Messiah. When you scrape back all the 2,000 years of accumulation and all the differences and all the different ideas about what a Christian is, when you scrape it all back, what you come back to is Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. That's why Christianity is called Christianity. That's why Christians are called Christians. We're people who are convicted of Jesus being the Christ. There it is. 
Now, there is more to be said, and I want to say a few more things in a moment, but because I can't stop there, but, but just feel the weight of that. That captures the essence of Christianity, is the person of Jesus, who he is, and what he does. We'll look at that next week, but who he is. Now, in a sense, there is, there is the foundation laid today. I'll tease out a few more things about what this truth means for us, but that's what it is. The very heart of Christianity is Jesus is the Christ. Now, what does all of this mean for us? Let me give you uh, three or four points. Move through fairly quickly and then we'll pause for questions. The first one is this. When you do scrape it all back, at its root, Christianity is not a philosophy, it's not a, a set of ideas, it's not a set of rules, it's not a formula, it's a person who actually lived in history, in Galilee, in Jerusalem, in that region. Now, some religions really are about an, a set of ideas, that's what they are. So, so Buddhism is actually about a set of ideas and principles and guiding paths. Uh, uh, Islam is, is about a, a set of rules and teachings of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, now, if you believe the principles of Hinduism and live by them, you're a Hindu or Buddha. Or a, if you believe Muhammad's teachings, you're an you're a Islamic person, you're a Muslim. But Christianity is unique. Yes, Jesus brought teaching and he did the most extraordinary, important thing. We'll come to next week. But his teaching was fundamentally about himself, who he was, who he is, what he came to do, what he came to do. At core, Christianity is about him, not just what he said, it is about him and who he is as the Christ, the Son of God, the ruler, the Lord of all. Here's the first thing. Second thing, because of this, the truth of Christianity is outside of us, not inside of us. The truth of Christianity is outside of us, it's not inside of us. Now, there's lots of religious talk these days that makes much of a journey within. So if you want to be a kind of religious person, it really is about discovering something within you, going within you and finding the truth that's your truth and finding the answers that speak to you and things that help you in your life. It's very personal and so on. It's important to observe this. Jesus didn't ask them at all about how they felt. He didn't dig into their psychology. He did history with them. He asked them about their grasp of external reality, about what they thought of who he was. Now, that is profoundly important to grasp, actually for your confidence and your joy and your stability as a, as a follower of Christ, actually. If Christianity is a lifestyle choice and if it's just one other religion that you choose based on how you feel within then because feelings are like the waves of the ocean, they kind of are all tumultuous up and down one day, and if, it's all ch if that's what Christianity is about how you feel within, your life will be up and down, up and down, up and down. 
But if Christianity is what Jesus says it is, about the truth of who he is, who he was, outside of you, independent of you, then you can have a rock to build your life on that won't shift and change like the sands of the desert. Jesus is there. He's a fact of history. Now, um, you don't start with exploring the Christian faith by seeing if it works, by seeing what's in you. You start exploring the Christian faith by asking historical questions. Who is this man? This man of history, is he the Christ? Because if he is, the implications are massive. Let me give you the third one. This means, therefore, that Jesus is for everyone, whatever your context, your sense of need, your hopes, your dreams, wherever you're at, Jesus is for everyone. Why? Because the claim of Jesus, the claim of the Christ reaches across the ages and centuries to every human. Let me dig here again for a moment. Jesus asked them, who do you say I am? And their answer is, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Jesus endorses that insight that I am the Christ, the Messiah, and then he fills it out. His whole life fills it out. He said the most extraordinary things, the the most self-possessed things. Listen to this. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He, he, He says, that you might know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the man, take up your mat and walk. He says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, if you build your life on me and my words, nothing will destroy you. He claimed to have authority to judge humanity, that God, his Father, had given him the power to judge, the right to judge. He had handed it all to him. And then he said these words, his last recorded words in Matthew 28, as you finish this account of Jesus' life, he said these words, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. All authority, the right to command, the right to govern, the right to rule over the human heart has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth. My authority is universal and unlimited. It's over every human in the present, in the future, in the past, All authority in heaven and earth, says Jesus, has been given to me as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus had the most extraordinary sense of himself, but his life matched these claims. The power with which he spoke, the self-possessed, humble way he held himself. What he did in his death and What he did in breaking the power of death and his resurrection. We'll look at that in three weeks' time, two weeks' time. Now, at this point, I'm not wanting to prove the truth of the claims of Jesus. But I'm wanting to make as clear as possible the nature of those claims, the staggering proportion of those claims. Again, compare it to other religious leaders. Buddha, 
Buddha never made such a claim about himself. He, he, he said, here is the way to the truth. Muhammad only claimed to be a mouthpiece of God, a prophet of God. And, and in the Quran wrote a series of revelations that he believed to receive from God about what God is like, but he never claimed to be more than a prophet. Jesus came saying, not here is the way to the truth, but he said, I am the truth, I am the way, I am the life, I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, it's been given to me. Jesus didn't just bring great teaching, he made himself the centre of the universe and every human life. Listen to the words of a, um, a, a, one Christian thinker uh, who started life as an atheist and uh, was uh, the most reluctant convert, he said, in all of Britain, a man called C.S. Lewis. And he's he, a very clever man and he wrote these words. Let me read them to you. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, he did not intend to. The early followers of Jesus, Matthew, John, Paul, the Apostle, these earliest followers, when they met Jesus... The impact on their lives changed everything. You can shut Jesus up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. You know, Jesus is for everyone, whatever your context, sense of need, hopes, feelings, fears. Because what is a Christian? For many, the answer is a Christian is just a needy person, a person who has an emotional lack, whose lives aren't working, who's kind of hungry for something more. And, needs a, and you might find yourself thinking, I'm not like that, I, I don't need Christianity. But at root, Christianity isn't you. It's the identity of Jesus. Is he who he claims to be? Because if he is the Lord of heaven and earth, the Christ, the Messiah, the one with all authority in heaven and earth, if he is that one, if he is the Lord, then he is our Lord, my Lord, your Lord. Whether you see a need or not, he is the one we were made for, the one we were made to serve, the one we were made to honour. You know, I was in this place many decades ago, I was going to say centuries ago, but some decades ago, I was in this place where 
I, you know, I had my ups and downs. I was a young adult with all the kind of typical things, but I was doing all right. I was, I was emerging to find my place and be happy and secure. And, um, and I was confronted by the person of Jesus. And I personally had to work out whether he is who he says he is or not. And that C.S. Lewis quote was really helpful to me. You can shut him up as a liar or reject him as the devil of hell or fall on your knees as God, the Son of God. They're your options. He is either a lunatic, a liar or Lord. Now you might wonder if he's a legend but when you look at these accounts that just does not work. He's therefore either a lunatic or a liar, someone who believes, knows he's not who he says he is, but says it anyway, a liar. Someone who believes he is, though he's not, a lunatic, or someone who is telling the truth. They're your only options. It was hugely helpful for him to dig into the evidence and consider the claims of Jesus along those lines. Is he really who he says he is? Or is he a liar or a lunatic? They were the only possible answers. Now I'm going to pause in a second for, for questions, but what is a Christian? We've got more to say. We've got more to say over the next couple of weeks because what is a Christian? It's not someone who projects their own needs onto a religious hope. It's not someone who's trying to be better than anyone else. It's not, it's not someone who's following um, a, a kind of a formula, a, a, a set of rules. That's not what a Christian is. What's a Christian? At root, it's someone who is convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. And convinced that that Jesus does what he comes to do, which is die on a cross for our sins to save us. Extraordinary. We'll look at it next week. But it's someone who is convinced that he is who he says he is, which changes everything. Well, let me pause there and see if there's any questions. We've got a few questions here, which is good. I can no longer see the text line, so stop messaging now. <laughs> I've, I've got them here, the ones that we're going to use. Um, so if to be a Christian is about Christ, his teaching, and our living for him, is there still any value in the traditions, e.g. being Anglican, Baptist, Catholic, if it's a, I think it's sort of coming from a place of if it's about just Christ and his teachings, like why bother with the, the yeah, organisations? Yeah. In some fashion you have to, because the lordship of Jesus, who Jesus is, one of the things he comes to do is to gather people back to God, back to himself and to each other. So one of the things he comes to do is to gather us together under him, which therefore means you have to organise yourself in some fashion. As a community of people, you have to work out how we're going to do this life together as we follow Jesus. It's, uh, the, the essence of Christianity isn't just me personally with Jesus, it's me following Jesus who calls me to be part of a group of people, the new community. So you've got to get organised. And that's where our differences come, largely, a lot. How do we best organise ourselves? Is the Anglican form of organisation the best way or the Baptist or the... Some of the differences in the denominations 
You know, it's um, you know, you buy a car. In the end, I just want a car that gets me from A to B, right? I want just a car that can do the job I need to have done. Some have got bells and whistles, like windows that do this, air conditioning does that, all that kind of deal, right? Um, Back in the day, you used to wind up your windows. It still worked, right? Graham, actually, Graham was back in that day, I remember, last week. The many denominations, the differences between them are just, you know, wind up or electric. You know, we've got electric windows here. Some places just have wind up windows. The Anglican has differences to back. Some of the differences are whether you put petrol and water in or only petrol. That'll destroy. And just one of the things is working out which differences are major and which are just. We have different styles and that's okay. Yep. All right. Here's a good question. Um, so are the Jews still waiting for the chosen one, the Messiah, the Christ, uh, to come? Uh, why, sort of looking back, why don't they think it was Jesus? Yeah. Yeah. These are good questions. Um, Yes, uh, Judaism, like once you have a human body of people, you over the time you start to form into different thinking and form different variety. Judaism has a great variety across it as well. So, you know, there's Orthodox Jews, but there's Zionistic Jews that are just about the political reality of Israel in Palestine in, in the nation of Israel itself. Um, you know, there are liberal Jews. You've, you've got a whole range of Jews. And, and many, though, yes, who are holding to the Old Testament are waiting for a Messiah to come. And many of those same, when they explore the evidence, actually become followers of Jesus, the Messiah. So we have a Masonic church near us who... They're Jews who are convinced Jesus is the Messiah. Um, so there's a great variety. There's a very old book called Betrayed, it's worth chasing up. It's a little old book uh, written by a Jewish man whose daughter became a Christian and challenged him to look at the evidence. And he began to read the Bible, the New Testament accounts, for the first time as an adult and was convinced that Jesus was the Messiah he'd been waiting for. And he just recounts the impact on that on his life and so on. It's happening all around the place. Okay. That sounds a little bit of a shift, uh, but really helpful question, I think. Uh, I'm a Christian who believes and prays... I've shortened your question, whoever you are, sorry. Um, I'm a Christian who believes and prays to God, but sometimes uh, doubts of God's existence come into my mind. Do true Christians doubt? Are you a Christian if you doubt? Yeah. When you get to the end of Matthew's Gospel, one of the important things that Matthew does is record for us uh, the reality that they saw the risen Jesus, some doubted. It's just so staggeringly amazing, the claims of this person, Jesus, that some just found it hard to comprehend that it could be so. And, you know, I think the normal human experience when engaged with things of such massive weight and significance is that you, you will go through times where you go, really? I, he demands my whole life. Am I really on the right track here? I'm a child of God because of the grace that God gives me in his death. And we'll look at that next week. But my life isn't looking so much better. Is this really... It's natural. It's natural. How do you resolve it? That's the key. You don't resolve it by looking in. You resolve it by going out and looking at the evidences. By looking at the eyewitness accounts of the person of Jesus. Seeing how it integrates uh, and dovetails with the Old Testament prophetic expectations, how there's astonishing and um, extraordinary ways in which Jesus fulfills 
centuries of prophetic hope, um, how you see the lives of the apostles and the way they lived having witnessed these things. They, all of them, bore testimony to the truth of Jesus to death, every one of them except one, uh, that they were faithful to the end for decades. You see all of, and the, the beginning of the early church, the impact it's had across, there's all kinds of evidence that you look at. You look out and see that, yeah. All right, last one, I'll leave you with this one. Um, so if Christ is ruling the world, how is that happening now or will it happen? Yeah, is Christ ruling the world now? It's, 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 if he came as the Prince of Peace, if he came to restore God's rule and destroy oppression and evil and sin and death, how come it's still all around? Because he came with his first instalment to establish himself as the Saviour Lord who calls humanity back. And in his kindness, and this is a helpful question to finish with, in his kindness, instead of bringing the final end then, he's given us a period of pardon. He's given us a time... Um, where, what's the, amnesty, what's the word for it? When, you remember we had John Howard decided to get all the guns back and if you had a gun that was illegal, he gave you a period of time and said, what's it called? An amnesty. So there's a period of time where he says you can come back and be okay. The end of that time, what God in his kindness has done is given us a period of amnesty. He has said, instead of finishing it all then, I've come to show you who I am, the glory and greatness of who I am, calling you back to myself. And in the coming of God into our world, he, destroy, he provides the means by which death is destroyed for all who would turn back to him. But he waits. He waits in a period of amnesty. And we're in that time now. And praise God that he gives us time. Because it's time to come back. You know, the Christian faith, the person of Jesus, when you look at him, he is not a reflection of current modern thinking projected backwards. He is not the projection of my own desires and wants into a religious... He is who he is, with all the shock value that brings to our world. I've come to show God the Lord of heaven and earth. He is powerful and strong. And here it is. He is more terrifying than you have ever imagined. Because one day we will all stand before this one who's given us a period of amnesty. But one day we will stand before this one. You know, if you're someone who is convinced Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, then I'd urge you to be aware that if he has all authority, then he needs to have authority over all of your life. He can't just be a hobby. He needs to be everything or he's nothing. If you're not someone who is convinced yet of Jesus being who he says he is, can I urge you please to look further? Look further. You know, there are other religions you can explore, but this one's unique. This one makes claims like no other. This is the place to start. If you find Jesus is not who he says he is, go elsewhere. But this is the place to start because if Jesus is who he says he is, then there is no other place to go. Let me pray for us. 
Our great God, we do ask, please, that you would fulfil that promise that those who seek, you will give them to find. And we ask that you might help us see the truth of who Jesus is. Help us come to it with an honesty and a readiness to go wherever the evidence takes us. And we pray, please, that in your kindness you would bring us to see the wonderful truth of the great and glorious Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen.